Welcome everyone to another edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Lupul, and I appreciate you joining me this morning. I ask that you please uh, share the show with a friend, give the stars, thumbs up, reviews as you see fit. All those things help the uh, metrics and the search engines to do their thing to get this out to more folks. So appreciate that. Thank you. Well, we are beginning our day with a law of the day. So let's go ahead and dive right in. If you have a copy of Scripture with you, we'll be in Exodus 22, verse 28. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. All right, there's a supporting text with this law. It's a very short law. And that text is found in Ecclesiastes 10.20, which says this, Even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Now, when we look at the verse about not cursing a ruler, it's interesting that the scriptures make a connection between God and those who are in authority. In the very same law, in the very same breath, it says, You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. Now, in the ancient world, it was very much understood that rulers were representatives of God, in a sense. And even in Scripture, in, for example, Psalm 82, judges and rulers are spoken of as little gods, lowercase g gods. And Jesus himself quotes from that psalm in talking to the Pharisees. Now, of course, because of idolatry, the idea of rulers was taken to the extreme, and oftentimes they were viewed as the embodiment of God or a God itself, or the direct representative of God, and having the full godlike or divine authority. So, for instance, Pharaoh, who was uh, who viewed himself as the son of Ra and expected to be treated accordingly, and then you also have Nebuchadnezzar, who makes a statue, uh, probably of himself, but maybe of his God and requires the people to bow down before it and worship it. So, idolatry and government have always been very closely connected. But the truth is is that there is a relationship between the civil ruler and the God who put that person there. And we see this in Romans 13, where the civil ruler is spoken of as God's deacon or God's servant, whose duty it is to carry out a vengeance against Uh, those who do evil. The civil government is to be a terror to bad conduct and wields the sword, basically uh, getting revenge for God. It's, It's God's avenger in that regard. So to revile God is certainly a sin, to hate God in your heart and to curse him. But it's also a sin to curse the ruler who is over you, because that ruler is doing God's duty, or is supposed to be doing God's duty, Uh, as God's deacon, God's servant. And to curse a ruler is also to curse God's providence and his sovereignty because God is the one who put that ruler in their place of authority and put you under that authority. Now, cursing, just to be clear, is a very serious offense. It does not mean disagreement. To curse someone is to invoke the strongest possible language against them. It's to invoke divine judgment upon them. 
and to oppose them with every ounce of your being. So one who curses someone wishes death and destruction upon the object of that curse. And it could apply to cursing God or cursing one's parents. And in the Old Testament, to curse one's parents merited the death penalty because it was such a serious offense. It was wishing that they were dead, and it was basically one step away from trying to carry it out. So it was a very serious issue to curse someone. It wasn't, it wasn't just using a, a foul language or getting angry and maybe saying something you didn't mean to in the moment. It wasn't, it wasn't like that. It was deliberate, it was rebellious, and it was full of hatred. Now, Job is an example of this. Job does not curse God, although in the book of Job, his wife tries to get him to curse God. She says to him, uh, curse God and die, which is pretty, pretty poor advice. But the idea being there that you're going to die. So in your dying breath, lash out at God and curse him. Go ahead. It's your last thing that you're going to do in this earth. And of course, Job says, no, he's not going to do that. But in the next chapter, he does curse the day of his birth. He spends about eight verses or so in Job um, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, uh, cursing the day that he was born, and essentially calling for his birthday, calling for the day of his birth to not exist, essentially, to be destroyed. So this is uh, a very strong language. Um, it's not just simply a dislike of something or disagreement with something. It was very extreme. So how do we apply this law regarding cursing our rulers today? Well, the immediate application is in the church. People within the church are not supposed to curse their elders, pastors, rulers, and, and things like that. We're supposed to show respect and submit to our, our leaders. But there's, of course, a, a more broad principle for all of, for all of society. 1 Timothy chapter 2 Verses 1 through 2 says this, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So rather than curse our rulers, we are supposed to pray for their salvation and that they would rule wisely. And we see the Apostle Paul, when he's brought before Governor Felix in Acts chapter 24, he spends some time reasoning with the governor about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. So we are allowed to talk to our rulers. We're allowed to uh, reason with them and, and discuss and debate with them. Uh, but we're to pray for them and not to curse them. And even if we disagree with the ruler or dislike the ruler uh, and what that person's doing, we can respond with respect and we need to. But we can still call out sin and call for repentance. Just to give two examples of that, in Matthew 14, we see the relationship between John the Baptist and King Herod. And it says this in verse 3 and 4, For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. So there, Herod is, is, is breaking God's law. He's taking his brother's wife to be his wife. And his brother is, of course, still alive. And John the Baptist is calling him out for that. And rightfully so. But there are consequences, of course. 
But then you have in Daniel chapter 4, Daniel interprets the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, the dream about him losing his power for seven years. And Daniel says this in verse 27, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. And so people can call out sin and call for repentance in their rulers. They can speak to them. They can teach them. They can, they can guide them. Uh, they can disagree with them. And we can pray that God would restrain our rulers from wickedness and deliver us from tyrants. And we pray for their salvation. And it's a common theme throughout the book of Judges that God's people prayed for deliverance because they did multiple times when they were oppressed and tyrannized. They prayed for deliverance, they, they repented of their sins, and God answered their prayer. So the law against cursing a ruler does not mean there cannot be proper biblical resistance against tyrants. Um, the law speaks against rebellion and a rebellious heart, but not against self-control and properly exercised resistance. The authority of parents is not absolute, for example. So a child may run or struggle with trying to avoid being murdered or beaten by a drunken father. And Paul and Peter both did things that were in disobedience to the civil authorities. They escaped from prison. They avoided arrest. And the Hebrew midwives, they disobeyed Pharaoh without being rebellious against him. But before any disobedience or resistance is done, we need to pray. We must look at our own hearts. We must ensure that we're being respectful. We must be quick to obey and submit if the ruler relents and repents. So at the end of the day, if we, if we desire the death of our rulers, our hearts are wrong. Sin starts in the heart and works its way out. Cursing in the heart leads to cursing in the mouth. And if unchecked, this will only lead to acts of rebellion and ultimately death. And this applies to our homes and how we speak about our rulers to our children. It applies to our Facebook posts um, and what, what, what we're putting up there and our conversations in public. It applies to our workplaces, churches, and communities. Are we, are we bad-mouthing our boss? Are we cursing him under our breath or to a fellow co-worker? Uh, certainly in the church, are we cursing or bad-mouthing uh, an elder or, or, or one of our pastors? And in our communities as well, our civil leaders. So all these things to say that we as God's people need to be careful in how our hearts are set towards our rulers. We need to pray for them, and we must not curse them. So that's our law of the day. And so we will continue now with looking at Lex Rex, which is The Law is the King by Samuel Rutherford. We're well over halfway done. Uh, a few more chapters left. This week, we're going to look at chapters 20 and 21, which I think are very relevant considering the law we just covered. Chapter 20 asks this question. Is self-defense against unjust oppression legitimate? And the answer that Rutherford gives is yes. All creatures possess the means to defend themselves and to fight or flight. And he gives many examples of animals that have claws and teeth and various other means at their disposal to defend themselves. And humans also have the ability to flee or to fight. Now, Rutherford says there are cases where running away is not possible. And he says this, quote, When a robber breaks into my home to steal my possessions, rape my wife and take my life, I have no place to run and must defend myself in order to preserve our lives, end quote. So he says that 
self-defense by a private individual. Private self-defense, which involves taking someone's life, might be necessary if there's no law enforcement nearby and the situation is so bad that that's the only way to preserve life. And But he makes a distinction between a private individual and a lesser magistrate, someone who is in a position of authority. Maybe they're not the king, but they could be a sheriff or a mayor or governor, whatnot. A private person may defend themselves against unjust violence, but they can't do so in any way they want. First, they must make petition, Rutherford says. They must, they must ask for mercy. They must um, ask the ruler to stop uh, doing the wicked deed. And they must ask for help from other rulers who are perhaps not doing uh, the uh, oppressive action, but are still in the chain of command, if you will. If their petitions don't work, then they need to run away. They need to flee. But of course, if they can't flee, then they might have to fight. And he gives the example of David and King Saul because he shows that David ran away and fled and hid from Saul for a long period of time while Saul was seeking to kill him. And certainly petition had been made. Jonathan had made petition to Saul several times on David's behalf, and King Saul didn't listen. Now, it's not just, though, that David fled. He was armed. He had his band of warriors, several hundred warriors. They were armed. They were in the mountains. It wasn't a refugee camp. It was like an armed resistance, but they were defensive. They were in the mountains. They were acting defensively, and obviously, if, if King Saul had, if had come to blows, they would have drawn swords and defended themselves. But David exercised self-restraint by not using his sword against King Saul when he didn't need to. So he, he, he placed it in God's hands. And, and that's the kind of restraint that we're talking about here, that we do not kill someone. We do not fight unless absolutely necessary. And there's no other, there's no other option. Now, Rutherford goes on to talk about how we have a duty to defend other people, too. If, if we see our neighbor being attacked or hurt, and if we do nothing about it, we're breaking God's law. We're not stepping in to protect our neighbor when we have the opportunity and the option and the ability to do so. And, and anyone may defend themselves if they're being physically assaulted. It doesn't matter whether the person doing the assault is just a random criminal on the street or the emperor himself. Now, lesser magistrates have a greater duty than private individuals because a lesser magistrate cannot flee. Okay, their, their job is actually not to flee. If they, if they were to flee, if, if the mayor or the governor or some other civil magistrate were to flee in the face of impending violence or invasion and abandon the people, well, that person would be viewed as a, as a pretty, pretty terrible leader. So a magistrate's job is not to flee, certainly to petition, definitely to petition, but to do what is necessary to protect those that are under his care. A private person can flee very easily, but an entire community might not be able to flee. So in in those instances, communities might have no choice but to band together and to resist. Um, And fleeing just involves putting distance and barriers between you and and the danger. 
the oppression, the, the tyranny. But you can do that if you can't if you can't move and make distance, you can certainly put barriers of walls, uh, trenches, fences, and things like that up. And Rutherford says this, he says, quote, an innocent population may defend itself when rulers either cannot or will not defend them. And this, he speaks of the example where there are no lesser magistrates to do, to do the right thing, that everybody has either quit or has been killed or has run away, and the community is basically on its own, defenseless. And in those cases, private citizens may elect or form new judges uh, to and magistrates to protect them and to provide justice for them. And, you know, this, this could happen in some kind of a dystopian, chaotic world where the whole government collapses and there is no government but, but lawlessness. Certainly a community may, uh, may govern itself. Or it could happen in an, in an invasion where the foreign nation um, basically destroys or causes the government uh, in the country to flee or go underground. And again, a community may govern themselves. So at the end of the day, lesser magistrates have a duty to protect those under their care. They wield the power of the sword just as much as kings do, but their domain is just a little smaller. They have a, a county or a state. Rulers are to protect the innocent. And they're to use peaceful means of doing so as much as possible. But they might have a decision to make at the end of the day to use the sword if they have to. And Rutherford ends the chapter by saying this. He says, we must remember, quote, that no man is the Lord of his own body or even his life, but is to be accountable to God for all things, end quote. And so lesser magistrates are accountable to protect those under them. But individuals are accountable to resist properly, to not be rebellious, to have a heart of submission, but to also know when to draw the line, when they need to step up and, uh, and say no to a tyrannical ruler. That's chapter 20. Chapter 21 is this question. Do political rulers alone possess the power to wage war? Now, it's kind of a weird question. It's a very short chapter, but... Rutherford's trying to address the issue, maybe um, people can resist, but, but who's allowed to wage war? Is it, is it just the king? Is it just the central, ultimate government that can wage war? Now, he says no. He says, uh, quote, All communities have the right to bear arms for the purpose of their defense if the regular armed forces are absent or occupied elsewhere, end quote. So, again, if, if we're invaded by a foreign country and the army is occupied, the community has the right to bear arms um, and offer resistance against the invader, um, basically to help the army. The army's job is to protect the country, right? They're the professional fighting force. But if they're occupied or destroyed, the country still has the authority to protect itself, has the responsibility to do so. Um, the, it's not just... Only the army that can do that. Rutherford goes on to talk about like if the ruler is disabled or if the ruler is captured in case of a foreign invasion or even an internal rebellion. Someone overthrows the government and establishes a puppet regime or uh, usurps the throne of the king and declares themselves to be king. Well, the people may lawfully make war against the invader or the usurper. And we see the example of this in, in the Old Testament with Queen Athalia in the, in the book of Second Kings, where uh, she usurps the throne of Israel, kills the royal family, and rules for six years. 
But Jehoiada, the priest and, and the captain of the guards, they ultimately wage war against her and put Joash on the throne, who's the rightful king. And even though she screams treason, treason, she's the one that committed treason. And they were fully uh, right to wage war against her because she was the usurper. And so, uh, logically speaking, the people are the ones that establish a ruler over them. I mean, we know it's God. God ordains it, but God ordains it through the people. It's the, the people vote, but it's God who has moved the people to vote a certain way. Just like uh, uh, the scripture says that the king's heart is like a river in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wants to. Well, he does that to people too. He turns the hearts of the people left or right. So when people vote for a king, that king that they get or they vote for a ruler, any ruler, um, the ruler they get is ordained by God. It's put in, he's put in there by God, but God is using the people to do it. Uh, every single vote that is cast is in accordance with God's plan. And it's God that moves a person to make a vote one way or the other. So to say that the people establish a ruler does not mean that God's not involved or he's not in charge. Well, even scripture speaks of that. I mean, when God tells Israel that they may appoint a king over them, they may choose a king over them. And in the situation of both King Saul and King David, uh, it was a covenant with the people and the king at the same time. The people acknowledged the king, ordained the king, and submitted to the king and, and made covenant with the king, but also God did too. So it was it was both and. So all that to say that the people have the inherent power to defend themselves. When they make an army or militia, they're simply delegating that power uh, and giving it to a, a select group of people to do it. Because that'll be more efficient and more effective than just each person doing it willy-nilly on his own. So they had the power of self-defense. They simply delegated it. So they retain the power of self-defense. At the end of the day, rulers are simply temporary mortal beings who've been put in place for a certain duty or job. And when that ruler dies, the nation will outlive them. Their communities will go on um, even when the ruler or the king is dead. So um, rulers are servants of the people and the community. The people have a right to defend themselves if the ruler is unable or unwilling to do so. And there are and there may be cases where the people have to defend themselves against the ruler if the ruler goes so far as to become a tyrant. I think these two chapters are, are particularly relevant with regard to today in our own culture and with regard to uh, the law that we just looked at. So we need to think about these things, uh, work through these things. They're not easy things, but um, they are still important. And as Christians, we need to um, consider them uh, greatly and carefully. So with that, I hope that you found this to be a blessing. Uh, I look forward to having you with me next time as we look at chapters 22 and 23. And until then, take care and...